Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, thank you for being with us at the beginning of a new Alan Jones week. Some very critical issues on which we hopefully can throw some light. This voice stuff is almost out of hand. The Prime Minister is still telling untruths, saying yesterday that in one-on-one conversations, people arrive at the decision to vote yes. Well, Prime Minister, it depends on how many lies you tell to the listener. The Prime Minister says it isn't a radical proposal. But 34 times he said that the Uluru Statement will be implemented in full. That's the voice. Sovereignty, shorthand for saying that you and I don't own this joint, and then a treaty. And that's not a radical proposal. But the Prime Minister says when the people, quote, talk through these issues, they arrive at a yes, pardon me, at a yes vote pretty comfortably. PM, you're deluding yourself. As David Michael Spratt of Mossman writes today, and I quote, My late Shearer grandfather, a 1901 Labor true believer, once told me while discussing politics that there was a significant difference between voting in a referendum and voting in a general election. He said, words to the effect, in a referendum, unless both major parties support the referendum, vote no. A more contemporary approach to voting in a referendum, he said, came from my old rugby coach. If in doubt, kick it out. Excellent advice. What about this Woodside crowd and their multi-billion dollar Scarborough gas project? (laughs) You see, sucking up to the government and tipping millions of dollars into the S-vote has got them nowhere. The chairman of Woodside is the Qantas man, Richard Goida, and they're tipping into the S-vote as well. Well, the board said they supported the voice. And now a traditional owner has gone to the federal court to say that Woodside Energy and its multi-billion dollar Scarborough gas project, I might add about 400 kilometres off West Australia's northwest coast, has unbelievably been given the boot in the federal court because a so-called traditional owner has said she hadn't been consulted over the impact of Woodside's seismic testing and that the testing, she argued, would disrupt the song lines of the whales. Well, just imagine if The Voice gets a look in. This stuff's already happening in the courts. Santos lost a case in the full federal court, not just with a single judge, as with Woodside, and the Santos project was 100 kilometres away from the Tiwi Islands off Darwin. But Santos failed to consult one Tiwi Islander. It had consulted several islanders through the Tiwi Land Council. Woodside had consulted plenty of traditional owners, though how you get to be a traditional owner of the sea 400 kilometres off the coast, I have no idea. But the voice would demand it be consulted. 
whoever the voice turns out to be. But here you've got a federal court where Woodside and Santos have consulted, but one person wasn't. One person believed that seismic testing 400 kilometres off the West Australian coast would disrupt the song lines of the whales. Perhaps corporate Australia, you gutless lot will wake up because as things stand, you will finish up with no voice at all. Australia's gas needs are being ditched on the specious grounds that a person who claims to be a traditional owner, whatever the hell that is, can torpedo our energy needs. Of course, the courts could have said, go away, couldn't they? Why didn't they? Or is the federal court frightened, like too many, of the consequence of just talking common sense on so-called indigenous complaints? Mr Albanese, though, can claim one triumph. The way he's conducted this campaign has confirmed in the minds of many that Jacinta Price is the kind of person this country needs as Prime Minister. Wherever she speaks, the mobs gather. She's moving hearts and minds beyond conservative politics. But people are voting. I don't believe pre-polling should be allowed unless in the most extraordinary circumstances. There's a polling date October 14. If you can't vote on October 14, unless there are extraordinary circumstances, it must be that you're too lazy or you don't care. And then the ballot paper says vote yes or no. But if you tick, the vote is valid. If you put a cross, it's not. Peter Dutton wrote to the Electoral Commissioner, urging that ruling about what counts as a valid vote to be reconsidered, he got nowhere. Then we've got this media release yesterday from the Australian Electoral Commission, virtually alleging cheating and deception from the Yes campaign. Now, the Yes campaign have erected signage outside some voting centres, there you can see it, with the purple and white colours. Now, the purple and white colours are of the Electoral Commission. Electoral Commission in purple and white signs, and the yes vote in purple and white. Look at the pictures. Now, the Electoral Commission issues a statement saying that the yes signage could mislead a voter about the source of the signage and, by extension, the source of the message. In other words, the Electoral Commission agrees with yes. The Electoral Commission has requested the yes campaign not to place the signs in the proximity of, a vote, of voting centre signs. Now, my view on all this is simple. In a referendum, it's easy. Before you go anywhere near a voting centre, you know whether you're voting yes or no. You don't need anyone handing you anything, nor are you influenced by a sign. But if the referendum is about giving a say to all Australians, I've had a note today from a viewer in Cape York. Thank you, Jason, for writing. He's accused the Australian Electoral Commission of being racist and unethical by not providing a polling booth in Laura. Laura has a population way up in the Cape of about 228 people. Evidence of Aboriginal occupation apparently going back thousands of years. Laura is west of Cooktown. And the Electoral Commission, as Jason tells me, has given no notice to the people of Laura. And he asks whether people in Laura and surrounds be covered or compensated by the Electoral Commission or the federal government for accidents or injuries or death in making their way to vote to Cooktown and back on October 14. Well, Jason is confirming that for many in the bush, Democracy only exists if you're prepared to travel hundreds of kilometres. Like many things, a mockery of justice. Well, in Victoria, Jacinta Allen, the new Premier, has unveiled her new Cabinet. There are 22 ministers, 14 are women. Jacinta Allen faced her first question time today, on the same day that a parliamentary inquiry into the Commonwealth Games debacle had its first public hearing. And of course, the big issue apart from that is the major blowout in multi-billion dollar infrastructure projects. 
But can the opposition make any headway when repeatedly the Andrews and now the Allen governments in Victoria deliver endless free kicks? And just on that, what are we being told about this Andrews resignation? Eh? No one resigns and goes the next day unless there's something serious that we haven't been told about. Why would you do it in the week of the football grand finals? For a career politician to just pull up stumps and leave immediately is not credible. Was Andrews tipped off? The leadership contenders didn't have any factional deals in place, nothing organised for his succession. I don't think that we've heard the whole story, have we? And will the Liberal opposition be asking some questions? And what about Tasmania? The last Liberal government in Australia is on the rocks. The Premier, Mr Rockcliffe, has hit the rocks and the political cliff. His future is in the hands of the dumped Attorney-General, Elise Archer. Now, on Friday, she quit her ministry and the Liberal Party, vowing to leave the Parliament. Now she's considering her options. She's in trouble because of messages that she sent in very colourful language about some of her colleagues. Quite frankly, having read the messages, Elise Archer sounds like the kind of person who should be running the joint. Rockcliffe is very unimpressive and doesn't want an early election, but he doesn't have the numbers in the parliament. Elisa Archer has been accused of bullying, but she argued she didn't bully anyone. Of course, telling the truth about some of her colleagues in colourful language in today's world constitutes bullying. As Matthew Denham writes today, quote, unless spared by his new worst enemy, Jeremy Rockcliffe will be not so much a lame duck as one of those plucked, gutted and roasted Peking numbers you see in the restaurant windows in Hobart's Sandy Bay Road. But this is the way of the world, is it not? A former Australian Olympic gymnast and Commonwealth Games medal winner, can we get those pictures down please of the Tasmanian leaders? A former Australian gymnast and Commonwealth Games medal winner, that's not them on the screen, I don't know what's going on, has been sacked by Sydney's City of Canada Bay Council. He was coaching six young gymnasts aged between 12 and 16 and in celebrating a competition when he described his girls as our beautiful team. Lindsay Nyland was accused of sexually objectifying the athletes. Students and parents and colleagues are in the dark. As the coach Lindsay Nyland said, the context of the email and photos was clear to one of pride in the achievement of the gymnasts at the competition. I understand, by the way, that both Gymnastics New South Wales and the council's five dock leisure centre have posted similar pictures of child gymnasts on social media using the word beautiful when describing athletes. Nothing wrong with that. I also understand that in the so-called investigation into Mr Nyland, parents, students and colleagues of the coach were not interviewed. There'll be a four-day hearing of the matter in the New South Wales Industrial Commission in mid-November. It's a joke, isn't it? Here we go again. Two young men who attended a music festival in Sydney at the weekend have died from a possible drug overdose. I would submit there's nothing much you can do. If these people don't now understand the lethal nature of drugs in general, let alone those distributed at these music festivals, then I'm sorry, they are beyond help. But the court system doesn't help. A festival goer caught with almost 500 pills on him was granted bail on Sunday. The Police Association New South Wales President Kevin Morton is right, he said, the court system is out of touch. Well, proof of that. How out of touch is this? A Sydney mother has been found dead just 30 hours after her son was granted bail by a court despite police alleging he tried to choke her and he was at risk of harming her again. 
The 67-year-old mother was found dead in the backyard of her Bankstown home on Sunday night from massive head injuries, which police allege were caused by her son. The 31-year-old son is now being accused of fatally attacking his mother with a knife during an altercation inside the family home before setting light to a room at the back of the premises. The 31-year-old Troy Safranco had been released from custody at midday on Saturday after being arrested by police for allegedly trying to choke his mother during an altercation on Friday. By Sunday night, the mother was dead. If we are interested in civil and decent society, both the bail laws and the court system leave much to be desired. I'll have something to say tomorrow about the extortionate price of fuel at the Bowser and the cost of living ramifications. They get worse under the Albanese government. And I'll have something to say about the weekend of sport later in the program. But look, something of interest, next Monday in the theatre of the New South Wales Parliament, an important conference on issues facing us on the referendum. It'll be convened by Professor David Flint, who appears with us here on ADH. The tickets are $25 or concessional tickets of 15. You can register at norepublic.eventbrite.com. That should go on your screen here, norepublic.eventbrite, E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E.com, norepublic.eventbrite.com. You can also watch live or on demand on ADH TV. There'll be special messages from, special, special messages from John Howard and Tony Abbott, and I will be speaking a bit better than I did then, I hope, primarily on this referendum on Saturday week. So that's next Monday afternoon in the New South Wales Parliament Theatre. Register at norepublic.eventbrite.com. You're watching ADH, I'm Alan Jones. Why does it take a brilliant and articulate British author and political commentator to tell whinging Australians what they should know? I'm referring to Douglas Murray, educated at Magdalen College, Oxford, who recently made the obvious point that history is always being re-evaluated. But he then said, and I quote, rarely has a country had a change as abrupt and comprehensive as Australia in one generation, unquote. Now, of course, America have done a bit of this, as have Canada. But as Douglas Murray says, Australia seems to have gone most all in on a re-estimation of itself. Now, Douglas Murray alluded to the former Prime Minister John Howard's recent observation when Howard said, the luckiest thing that happened to this country was being colonised by the British. Well, last week I made the point that I just wish the whinging and whining yes advocates like Marcia Langton and Noel Pearson would find the decency to say to hard-working, tax-paying Australians of all ilk, and I'm not talking Indigenous and non-Indigenous. I am Indigenous. An Indigenous person is a person who originated in a particular place and is a native to that place. That's you and me. Many of you listening to me were born here. We originated here. We are Indigenous. But back to the whinging and whining of so-called Aboriginal leaders. And Douglas Murray says, do you think it was on balance a good thing that the English arrived? In the case of America, would you on balance rather that Christopher Columbus had not set sail? Or should he, having discovered America and having returned home, should he have pretended there was nothing worth seeing out there? Until very recently, says Douglas Murray, the answer that most Australians, like Americans, would have given to such questions would have been, obviously, I am glad that the country was discovered and the Europeans were among the better people to discover the land. Would the history of Australia, he says, have been better or worse? If the Chinese had colonised at first, or if the Persians had sent their prisoners to these shores, would it have been better for America if Columbus had been a Mongol or Hutu? 
unquote. Well, the answers to all that are blindingly obvious. And yet here we are having to endure the perpetual bleatings like people, like the Prime Minister of Australia gives us about the sufferings of Aboriginal Australians. If we were honest, we would say that not all of those sufferings have been inflicted by others. But here's a man, Douglas Murray, born in London, who said, quote, I often marvel at how much non-Aboriginal Australians, note he doesn't say non-Indigenous, non-Aboriginal Australians have been expected to put up with in recent years. Not least the endless guilt tripping and the apologies without end, the sea of hands displays in which hundreds of thousands of Australian citizens sponsored and signed plastic hands in Aboriginal colours to sit on the lawn outside buildings like Parliament House in Canberra, the creation of a national sorry day back in 1998 and the signing of sorry books, unquote. As Douglas Murray, a learned pom, has said, the apologies never stop coming. He said, it's now 15 years since Kevin Rudd as Prime Minister made his apology to the Indigenous peoples of Australia. Has any of the guilt been alleviated since then? Have the sorries washed away any blame? It seems not, he says. But then how could they? Douglas Murray then cites ethicists of the last century who've agreed that an apology can only work when it comes from someone who's done a wrong and is accepted by someone who has been wronged. If it comes from someone who themselves has done no wrong and goes to someone who has not actually been wronged, then the deal's a fraud. As Douglas Murray says, if such an apology is offered and accepted, it's a fraud on both sides. Someone who's done no wrong is pretending to be speaking for the dead and people who've suffered no direct wrong are pretending to be able to accept an apology on behalf of people they didn't know." Unquote. You see, this is the madness that Albanese and co and Langton and Pearson don't seem to understand. As an outsider like Douglas Murray remarks, all this quote doesn't seem to be getting the country anywhere because it never could, unquote. But then the disturbing guts of this issue, which applies to you, my dear viewer, because you're far too courteous. As Douglas Murray argues, quote, one thing that it does do is subdue the majority of Australians, the typical Australian, no longer seems to me, says Douglas Murray, to be that striding, sensible, happy-go-lucky figure of old. They seem, he said, in my experience, to be guilt-ridden people, self-conscious to an often excruciating degree. Why? He says, well, if you browbeat any group of people for long enough, you'll get that result. A cringing, creeping through life person who subdues their thoughts and distrusts their own speech and actions, unquote. That's us. As Douglas Murray writes, this brings him back to his original question, which we all need to answer. The question beneath the debate on a so-called indigenous voice to parliament, because as this British outsider asks, consider the tone in which these voice proposals are being put to us. Enter the Uluru statement from the heart. Douglas Murray, the British academic, quotes that statement and we should listen carefully to the language because this stuff's being taught in schools. Listen to the language, quote, this is in the Uluru Statement. The invasion that started, there's that word, at Botany Bay, is the origin of the fundamental grievance between the old and new Australians. <laughs> the old and new. He said, this is the time, this is the Uluru Statement. This is the time of the frontier wars, when massacres, disease and poison decimated First Nations. First Nations? No nation at all. But the Uluru Statement said, even as they fought a guerrilla war of resistance, the Tasmanian genocide, this is in the Uluru Statement, 
and the black war waged by the colonists reveals the truth about this evil time. The taking of our land without consent represents our fundamental grievance against the British Crown. By making agreements at the highest level, the negotiation process with the Australian government allows First Nations to express our sovereignty. Our sovereignty. Why does it take an Englishman to tell us that that language in the Uluru Statement from the Heart doesn't sound like the words of a group seeking common ground? It's based on the language of blame, victimhood and grievance. To quote Douglas Murray, a language not of equality, but of superiority. It refers to the British as colonisers, invaders, murderers and rapists, who to this day are living in a country that's not their own. Douglas Murray's not the only person who expressed bewilderment at what kind of life was so wonderful for the settlers that arrived with the first settlement, because as he notes, many of these early arrivals died from disease. And as he notes, the Indigenous peoples were hardly a pacifist group, whatever the propagandistic history of those times now pretends. And then this, if the Aboriginals were propagated or subjugated, then they can join the club of almost every group in human history. The whole of history, says Douglas Murray, is the story of peoples rolling into other people's neighbourhoods and either succeeding or failing to conquer them. It happens to be the story of Aboriginal culture as well, where Aboriginal groups subjugated, subdued and slaughtered each other. I know that it's now de rigueur to refer to the origins of the, Australia, of the Aboriginal communities as dream time, but there was nothing dreamlike, he writes, about Aboriginal societies that were violent, poverty-stricken and woefully unadvanced even for their time, unquote. Are you listening, Marcia Langton and co? Writes the English author Douglas Murray, anyone who likes to romanticise that time today needs their head examined. You would have hated to have lived in those times and nobody should kid themselves otherwise, unquote. And of you, Prime Minister, Douglas Murray has this to say to the cheers of millions of Australians, and I quote, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese may have tried to keep this whole debate as unheeded as possible, but even he has been happy to say, as he did at Marrickville Town Hall in October last year, that Australian history since 1788 has been a brutal history, unquote. As Douglas Murray says, once you concede nonsense, fantasy history like this, you'll find it very hard to get your footing back, unquote. And since Albanese has said no fewer than 34 times that his government's committed to the Uluru Statement, quote-unquote, in full, then Mr Albanese should know that that Uluru gathering produced voice, treaty, truth. So it looks like if you vote yes, the treaty will be on the table very soon. Looking from afar, Douglas Murray says that the Yes campaign has been adept at claiming everything it doesn't like is racist. And because everything in its view is racist, including the founding of Australia, then if the founding of a country is racist, everything in it is racist. That's what we're facing. It's the most emphatic reason why Australians must, and I'm convinced they will, vote no. You can only listen to all these untruths for so long. We are now, on Saturday week, be given a chance to put a lid on them. Look, I want to return to a specific aspect of energy shambles over which we're now presiding, and we are paying for it. I'll talk tomorrow about the extortionate price we are paying for petrol at the Bowser and why. It's undeniable that indecision over energy policy is costing us. And as I've told you many times, sadly, it will get worse. 
Put simply, this is just taking money away from struggling families. It's all very well climbing on your ideological horse to close coal-fired power stations. But for now and for tomorrow, and for next year, let me tell you a certainty. Up to 80% of our energy will come from fossil fuels. One correspondent has written today that uncertainty stifles investment and drives up power prices. Well, to use a simple analogy, why would you quit one job which pays well if you don't have another to go to? Why would you sell one home when you don't have a replacement home? Why do you take a footballer off the field and replace him with someone who was picked as a reserve for a real reason? He wasn't as good as the bloke on the paddock. But here we are closing coal-fired power stations in the forlorn belief that renewables are going to power the nation. That is the ultimate delusion and we are paying for it now and we'll pay for it down the track. In other words, why would you close off fossil fuel production when you don't have the resources to replace them? I repeat, Bowen, I've said over and over again, is the most dangerous, ignorant and arrogant politician this country's seen since World War II. The latest is the demonisation of any mention of nuclear energy. You will recall in Peter Dutton's budget reply speech, he made the none too startling suggestion that Australia could consider nuclear power. Yet again, many in the media, with either no memory or little regard for history, should have been able to argue that the Dutton suggestion was hardly novel. I've referred many times to a speech by the late Prime Minister Bob Hawke in September 2005, nearly 18 years ago, when he called on the ALP to abandon its policy on uranium. And importantly, quote, to promote Australia as a repository for nuclear waste, unquote. Mr Hawke said, Australia has the geologically safest places in the world for the storage of waste, unquote. He said in 2005, what Australia should do in my judgment as an act of economic sanity and environmental responsibility is to say, we will take the world's nuclear waste, unquote. Here we are swimming in debt. Mr Hawke argued, as I in fact had argued, that we could pay off that debt, Mr Hawke said, we could revolutionise the economies of Australia if we did this. That was 2005. The late Mr Hawke returned to the subject on February 9, 2015, when he backed citing a nuclear waste dump in South Australia. Ironically, he said, the Labor Party has shown that it has a degree of flexibility in the nuclear debate, particularly with the export of uranium. He said in 2015, global warming is a very real threat. Incidentally, at the time, I remember arguing on air with him about that, but put that aside. Mr Hawke said in 2015, nuclear power generation is an important part of dealing with that challenge, that's global warming, with storage. If we could make it safer for the world, it would be a win-win situation, unquote. Now, I wonder whether Mr Hawke was thinking of Chris Bowen when he said in 2015, ignorance is the enemy of good policy. This, of course, brings us to this policy charlatan, Chris Bowen. A charlatan, by the way, is a person who falsely claims to have a special knowledge. Bowen more than once has called nuclear energy a complete joke that, quote, nuclear is the most expensive form of energy. We have a cost of living crisis. Energy prices are going through the roof. And that is the big, bright idea. Let's have the most expensive form of energy we can possibly think of, unquote. What did Mr Hawke say? Ignorance is the enemy of good policy. Remember, Bowen is the bloke who buried Bill Shorten in the 2019 election with a punitive and divisive tax policy and then said, if you don't like it, don't vote for us. Now, you've heard me say on good energy policy that it can be responsibly described in one sentence. It must be available, 
reliable and affordable. Nuclear energy is available 24 hours a day and virtually emissions free. We have at least a third of the world's uranium, but nuclear power has been banned in this country since 1986. The technology is now so advanced that these small modular reactors or SMRs can be placed in remote areas, unlike old reactors that needed to be near large water catchments. The new SMRs can be buried to withstand any physical or natural disaster. They can be mass produced in an off-site factory, shipped to locations and then assembled. And they need only 5% of the nuclear fuel that is needed to power large conventional reactors. Every year, we export more than 400 shipping containers of uranium, enough to generate all of our own electricity with zero emissions. But instead of producing electricity at home, Australian uranium is used to produce vast amounts of clean energy. Are you ready? Our uranium, clean energy, here we go. In America, South Korea, China, Canada, Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, Belgium, Finland, Spain, Sweden, the Netherlands, the UK, Armenia, Belarus, Bulgaria, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Romania, Russia, Slovakia, Slovenia, Ukraine, Turkey, Bangladesh, India, Japan, Pakistan, South Africa, Iran, the United Arab Emirates, but Australia, that's our uranium, is burdened with an energy ignoramus and an ideological misfit in this fellow Chris Bowen. After the Dutton comments, Bowen attacked Peter Dutton, posted a video on social media that controversially included images of yellow barrels, and no doubt someone in the Albanese government told him to take the damn thing down. This man, Bowen, is an albatross around the neck of our energy future. Nick Cater is a splendid contributor here on ADH. You can watch him at 8pm every night, every Thursday night, not every night, every Thursday night. He's also a senior fellow at the Menzies Research Centre. He writes regularly in the Australian newspaper with great clarity. He joins us. Nick, thank you for your time. I mean, the best you can say about Bowen is encapsulated in a headline of a piece that you wrote recently, quote, Chris Bowen is a costly waste of energy, Nick. Yeah, he is. I also wrote, Alan, that, that uh, he's probably very well uh, credentialed to be the energy minister of La La Land, but not of Australia. I mean, he's got a fanciful plan here uh, that just cannot work. He's trying to de defy the laws of thermodynamics to produce our electricity by wind, solar and water alone. It can't be done. No country in the world has done it. And yet he somehow thinks he can manage this by 2044. And Alan, you know, he's working to a plan that sees us get rid of 60% of our coal in seven years' time. Now, that is ludicrous. That is absurd, as you point out. Without coal, the whole thing collapses right now, unless we can find some other form of baseload power. And that, of course, is what nuclear does. It's, it's on tap when you want it. You don't have to wait for the, we the right weather forecast. The bloke won't get into the ring or argue, will he? I mean, he won't come on this program because the last time I had him on, he was the shadow treasurer and he couldn't tell me the marginal tax rates. And that piece of the interview went viral. <laughs> I don't know, we might have a bit of, you might be interested, this is the level of ignorance of this bloke. Um, I've talked to Charles on my earpiece, I think we've got this here. Because in that portfolio, he didn't know what it, he didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> Sorry, Charles, we've got it, have we? He, he didn't know what he was talking about, but too arrogant to concede, so I kept at it. This bloke's now in charge of energy policy. Have a look at this. 
Can you outline to everyone out there what are the various tax levels, at what point we pay so much in tax if you're an income earner? Oh, so, on. for example, who, at what point do we pay nothing for tax? Hmm? No, 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 no tax at all. Well, you pay up no, to you, you get a, you get a tax free threshold. Yeah, uh, what is it? Hey? Well, you get you pay no tax. Yeah, what is it? Well, you get a low income earners tax it's offset. Tax free threshold. You get a low income earners tax offset, which what then provides. What is the tax free threshold? Well, Alan, the tax. What is the tax free? There's a point up to which yes. we don't pay any tax. What Correct. is that? Point? And then you get a low income what is that tax point? offset, which what provides a refund to low and middle what income is earners. The point Alan, at which we and you pay no high tax. income superannuation. I mean, the fellow for Treasurer, Chris, I'll, I'll give you the answer. The answer is 18,200. Yeah, Between 18,200, where do we right. go to the next point? Oh, that's that's right. Where is it? Well, the, the bottom threshold is, of course, 15%. Yeah, but hang on. The man is pretending he no, wants well, to be the Treasurer of Australia and doesn't know the tax threshold. No, no, so we go from 18,200... I'm, I'm, I'm not going to cop well, from on, you. I'm not going to cop from you. Well, come on, you couldn't answer the first question. Because so I'm what's here to talk to you about serious issues. What's the next threshold? I'm not going to do a pop quiz for you, What's the next threshold from 18,200? I'm not going to do a pop quiz with you. What is the next threshold I repeat, from 18,200, we then move to the next tax threshold. What tax do we pay between 18,200, and I'll tell you what it is, mm. it's 37,001. Mm. So 15%. between 18, what do we pay? 15%. We don't pay 15, we pay 19 cents in the dollar. Oh dear, dear, dear. That was from a TV program I did with Graham Richardson who was absolutely gobsmacked. I think it's fair to say Richo is no Bowen supporter. The bloke plainly, Nick, the bloke is out of his depth, this fellow. He's not across detail, is he, Alan, as you proved there? And, of course, when it comes to energy policy, particularly the electricity grid, detail is very, very important. You see, the electricity grid, when it's working, is, is a miracle. They have to supply exactly the right amount of electricity into it at any given point to meet demand. You can't be, you can't be out. You can't be, oh, we've, we're near enough. And, and, and if you don't do that, then, of course, you lead to, you, it leads to blackouts, which is what I think we're heading for at some point. Uh, because it's, it's getting to the point where it is, it is virtually impossible. And there are times in the day when there is so much renewable energy, they have to tell these solar plants and wind farms to shut down because they can't take any more on the grid and the interconnectors won't take them. And then, the, then you can have that at, say, 12 o'clock and by 6 in the evening, we're pumping up the coal again and we're powered by 70% by coal. How does Boeing think we're going to overcome that energy, that engineering problem? Did he have any engineers in the room when he came up with this scheme or did he just get it off the top of his head? But we just, we just signed a deal to acquire nuclear submarines. Well, exactly. I mean, if, if Bowen thinks that nuclear waste is toxic, he should be opposing the buying of nuclear submarines, shouldn't he? He should. And what, what has Labor got against nuclear? They, they're stuck in the last century, aren't they? they they're stuck in the, in the 1970s. You know, that, that they, they, they've been watching too many scary movies or watching The Simpsons. <laughs> you know, how come a country like, well, say this, the province of Ontario, which was powered by about 60% coal 20 years ago, a, a, a left-wing government, Liberal in their terms, but Labor in ours, came in and said, we're going to get rid of coal by going to nuclear. They did it by 2014. Now they've got one of the cleanest kids on the, on the, on the, in the world. And what's more, Alan, the price of electricity in Ontario to consumers is two and a half times cheaper than it is here. 
Now, if, if Kevin Rudd had made that decision in 2007, we'd be there now. But Labor have got this thing. I don't know what it is. You might be able to understand it. You've lived in this country longer than I have. I've no idea why they're so opposed to it, but it's, it's in their blood and, and they can't accept that uh, our future has got to be nuclear unless they're prepared to carry on with coal. I mean, when Bowen made those embarrassing observations, Dr Adrian Patterson, who ran our sole nuclear reactor at Lucas Heights for a dozen years, uh, slammed the video posted on social media by Bowen and in a Senate hearing on whether Australia's nuclear ban should be lifted, Dr Patterson said the Bowen video, quote, gravely concerned him because it, quote, maligned the very carefully trained and committed workforce at ANSTO, which is the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation. Dr Patterson said, reflection should be given to the deep damage that this political gamesmanship does. Nick, in all things of Bowen's pronouncements to get to a 43% reduction in carbon dioxide by 2030, which I've always said and you've said is beyond ridiculous. I mean, 22,500 watt solar panels every day yeah. for eight years. What? A 47 megawatt wind turbines every month, 10,000 kilometres of additional transmission lines. I mean, Bowen has proved he should not be in this policy area. Do you think the public, though, have woken up? Oh, I think they're waking up very quickly, Alan. You know, there's not been a single wind farm or wind, wind project or, or turbine development approved this year? None, nil. So, you know, he's 11,000 uh, uh, solar panels a day and he's one turbine every 18 hours. It's not happening, but he can't admit that. And, it, and, and the investment is slowing down. The cost of, of these things is going up. The raw materials are getting more expensive. Uh, people are not financing them because the interest rates are going up. The money's just not there. It, it is an impossible task. And at some point or another, the government is going to have to admit this unless it's out of government by that point because it'll get to the point where it just won't happen. It's not that it's... But, it, I mean, why does, why does the opposition... I mean, I go back about Brittany Higgins. Why do they give up on Brittany Higgins when she got $3 million, apparently, of taxpayers' money? We don't know why. So you'd persist with that. Why don't you persist with this? Why, why wouldn't Peter Bowen be screaming every day, someone will eventually listen to him, there are over 450 nuclear power reactors in the world in over 50 countries, many of them using our uranium, just as many... Many countries have risen out of poverty by buying our coal and gas. I mean, mm. wouldn't you prosecute that case until you were blue in the face? I, th I think so, Alan. And give, let's give Peter Dutton credit for the fact that he has taken this on board. He's now committed to, to backing this home at the next election. The previous government under Scott Morrison, they, they, you know, lots of people were saying, including me and others, were saying, you've got, when you, when you had AUKUS, we, the, it's an obvious step then to introduce yes. nuclear power. Yes. They were worried, they had polling, which made them worried. Okay, but well, that's in the past. Peter Dutton has bought this now and, and the polling shows that the, most people are open to the idea. The yes. majority, the vast majority, not everybody is saying yes, definitely, but they're saying we, we're open to mm. the argument. Mm. And, and why wouldn't you be when the price of energy is going up? But you know? why wouldn't you be saying it every day? I mean, people say, oh, Peter Dutton was right. Oh, did you hear Peter Dutton today? Did you hear? I mean, this bloke's got to be under siege. I mean, for 22,500 watt solar panels every day? Yeah. But, hey, and, 
Alan, you know, I've been travelling around the country looking at some of these projects and seeing the absolute heartbreak of communities that are divided, people yes. that have seen their house prices drop in value, their land values drop, they've had to put up with these massive great constructions, and they are big. You know, this is massive construction work, Alan. It's not just the idea of a little windmill in a paddock. You know, they're having to knock down half a hill to put these things up in some cases. So if for every day we delay making the absolute absolutely obvious choice of nuclear, we are doing more damage. We're right. doing, and it's right. not just the money, Alan. When you see how these communities are torn apart by this and how people's lives are just, just put on hold for years on end, this is tragic. We can't do this to our fellow, right. fellow Australians. And then, I mean, 10,000 kilometres of transmission lines, the farmers and others out there, or the people on, east, on the seaboard who perhaps don't care about the farmers, do you understand these people are most probably going to, the government Bowen compulsory acquire. Yeah. Productive land to shove in these transmission lines because basically the energy is way out in whoop whoop and they've got to get it to the grid. I mean, is this what they're going to do? And where do they get 10,000 kilometres minimum of transmission lines from? We wouldn't need any of this, of course, if we'd gone to nuclear. We would not Correct. need any of Correct. it. Correct. And, and the Snowy Hydro project is, is, is one of the most unbelievable schemes, you know, that they're having to put in huge li transmission lines to get the power from Wagga Wagga and other places all the way down to Tumut and past Tumut up the snowy mountains. And then they've got to send the power back again and they've got to pump the water uphill all for about 2.8 gigawatts, you know, and, and, and now what we're told, 20, 2030 it's going to be complete. Believe I mean, they, they try and tell you nuclear takes a long time. I, I think we, Canada will, will be have its first SMR in action and other places like Wyoming will far long before we get that snowy hydro online, well, we've got if to, we do. We've got to change the legislation to start with. Look, just before we go on this, I thought Bob Carr made a very, very important point a couple of months ago. He referred to the Hazelwood coal-fired power plant in the La Trobe Valley, which has been demolished. Mm. And he says, well, why wouldn't Peter Dutton and that out-of-his-depth Liberal leader in Victoria, John Pesuto, promise to repeal Victoria's Nuclear Activities Prohibition Act of 1983, and Dutton promised to repeal the 1999 Federal Act that bans approval for nuclear power and enrichment, and then say a coalition government federally and in Victoria would seek expressions of interest to construct a nuclear power plant on the Hazelwood site. And Bob Carr said, it's a big parcel of land already zoned for heavy industry, so the development approval process would be significantly short-circuited. The land's plugged into a transmission network. Yep. Hey, and the whole Victorian grid was built to accommodate power production on that site. There we go, Hazelwood. Yeah, well, you're right. We need not just the federal uh, Liberal Party and National Party. We need the state parties on board too. But they we do need... no homework, Dick. They do no reading. There's no scholarship. No. Hey, they no. know nothing. No, no. Well, so much of this debate is conducted in absolute ignorance, Alan. People, Absolutely. you know, they, 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 they pick on a totem and, and that's it. They run with it, you know. It, because the, the cold hard fact is, and people like A.D. Patterson, who you mentioned, will tell you this, there is no physical way of getting to what Chris Bowen wants, 82% renewable energy at any time, let alone 2030, without nuclear or stick with coal. They're the Absolutely. only two options. They Absolutely. are the only two options, Alan. There's in, you, if you were a country like, say, Sweden, you'd have lots of hydroelectricity, fine. If you were Iceland, you'd have geothermal, fine. We haven't got any of that. Here, the only option is coal or nuclear if we want to power this country and not drive it broke. Good on you. 
You're a star, Nick Cater. You are a star. Brilliant stuff. And the thing is, you and I have got to keep saying it. And when we've finished saying it, people might just come to understand it. We are facing a crisis. The architect of that crisis is this ignoramus and ideologically, ideological fool, Chris Bowen. I tell you, the most dangerous politician this country's had since World War II. Nick Cater, thank you for your time. Thank you, Alan. There you are. You can hear Nick every Thursday night here on ADH. Well, in the world of sport, it all began at the weekend with an extraordinary win by Collingwood against the Brisbane Lions in front of over 100,000 people at the MCG on Saturday. Few people knew that the Collingwood coach, Craig McRae, had raced to the hospital on that same Saturday morning, last Saturday, to witness the birth of his little girl at 7.45am. His first child with wife, Gabrielle, but his third daughter after two girls he shares with his ex-wife. The baby girl was appropriately named Maggie, I presume after the Magpies, whom Craig McRae as coach led to their 16th premiership. But the Lions had two shots in the last 10 minutes, which should have been goals, 12 points. But they registered only two behinds, two points, and the losing margin was four. In their last training session of the year, Craig McRae had his players run up the steps at the top level of the Shane Warne stand for 30 minutes. He told them the significance of taking the steps. Collingwood needed to take the steps to realise their dreams of a premiership and not take any shortcuts, like an elevator or an escalator. Collingwood and Brisbane went step for step for the whole journey. It was pulsating stuff. There were plenty of right or wrong steps, and I'm sure the Brisbane Lions will remember them. But Collingwood, a worthy winner. And then it was Sydney's turn. I could not believe the standard of the Women's League final. The Newcastle Knights scored two late tries to seal back-to-back -back Rugby League women's premierships, 24-18 over a very good Gold Coast Titans. The Knights were down by six points with 10 minutes to go. The extraordinary 26-year-old, Tamika Upton, and people should get to know this woman, she can play. The Knights fullback, she was born in Rockhampton. She did it all with the scores level. She grubbed and collected a loose ball to score the winning try. A class athlete, but what I loved is she was willing to gamble. Disappointments for the Gold Coast with a young and exciting squad. They were very close to the money. Jamie Chapman became only the second player in women's rugby league history to score a hat-trick in the grand final. But the match was, I've got to say, high quality. And then Penrith versus Brisbane. There were winners everywhere. At the death, Nathan Cleary took looming defeat by the throat and almost single-handedly gathered for the men at the bottom of the mountain, the third consecutive premiership. It was stunning stuff, it was dramatic. No one could have written the script. Brisbane led 24-8, courtesy of the young man, Ezra Mam, who's the Dally M's 5-8 of the year. This is an extraordinary story. Much of it written in tattoos on his body. His grandparents are the two biggest tattoos, and then his mum and dad. The mum lives on Hammond Island, which is in the Torres Strait. It's got a population of about 200. So Mum got a dinghy ride from Thursday Island in the Torres Strait. She then caught a ferry to Horn Island, population 531 people, but they do have an airstrip. So Mum flew to Cairns and then to Brisbane and then to Sydney, and then she was at Accor Stadium on Sunday night to see her gifted 20-year-old son, Ezra, perform amazingly. Perform he did three tries, and the Broncos must surely have thought they were home. 
Then came Nathan Cleary to lead the greatest grand final comeback in rugby league history. It would be better though if Nathan stayed out of the politics. Arguing yesterday, come on Australia vote yes, Nathan, no one knows more about rugby league and winning than you do, but I suspect you know nothing about the politics of the voice. Stay out of it. You're too good to be used in this way. But full marks to Penrith. I well remember when they were a club struggling for recognition. I was on radio at the time and trying to help the district gather some appreciation for what they were trying to do. They entered the competition more than 50 years ago against all the hotshot teams. Penrith 50 years ago was virtually a one street town. The club was small. Now Penrith is a thriving metropolis with extraordinary amenities and the Penrith Leagues Club is the envy of the world. The Dally M's are for the best in rugby league. They're always handed out in the week of the grand final. Now the coach of the year should not be an award for the most improved coach. That would be Andrew Webster, the 41 year old coach of the Warriors, who in his first year did a remarkable job. But the coach of the year should have been Ivan Cleary, modest, unassuming, very successful with a son who's led the charge at Penrith. And while bouquets are being handed out, the referee Adam G in his first grand final was brilliant. He allowed the players to play the game, which became one of the greatest premiership deciders we have ever seen. Could rugby union please note, Adam G put the whistle away. Five penalties on the night, no sin bins. The bunker was kept out of play. This is how the game should be officiated. Referees, especially in rugby, are ruining the game. Andrew Adam G deserves credit for making the game the spectacle it was, played with remarkable speed and skill. I was born in Queensland, as you know, and you always remain a Queenslander. They are certainly, though, this week in a state of mourning. The Lions lost on Saturday at the MCG. The Titans lost the Women's Rugby League Grand Final. And then the Broncos lost after leading 24-8. But as Shane Webke, the Broncos legend, said, Brisbane blew it away and then threw it away. Adam Reynolds been a magnificent captain for the Broncos. His disappointment post-match was so profound, he forgot to congratulate Penrith for winning. He subsequently took to Instagram to apologise. He is a very good man and a decent man, but I wish such gifted players would forget these short line dropouts. Adam Reynolds had a shot at two. One went out on the full, penalty in front of the post to Penrith. Two points, the winning margin. It's been a rough week for the Queenslanders, but good things often come from adversity. And then there's the rugby. I'll be writing about it this week, but struggling to know what to say. The humiliation continues where Australia now has to hope that a match between Fiji and Portugal at the weekend might let them into an undeserved quarterfinal. It's been a diabolical World Cup. I say again, the chairman of Rugby McLennan and the coach Jones own this ignominious failure. They both should go and they should go now. The excuse making doesn't wash. The boys deserve better. I note that a body language expert has analysed Eddie Jones's responses about whether or not he'd been in talks with Japanese rugby on the eve of the World Cup. The body language expert is now saying that from the coach's body language, he did hold talks with Japan and that the Australian captain, David Parecki, feels that this had disrupted the World Cup campaign. The body language expert, Darren Stanton, said simply, it appears to me that Eddie Jones is not being honest in his press conference, and I do believe he had an interview with Japan. I repeat, he should go, 
and the bloke who made him the captain's pick, McLennan, should go with him. Meanwhile, Ange Postacoglu's star continues to rise. Tottenham Hotspur had beaten Liverpool once in their previous 23 games. On Saturday, Postacoglu's success continued. The Spurs won 2-1. It was a controversial game, but Tottenham played amazing football and they remain unbeaten. They're not at the top of the table. They played 7-1-5 and drawn two. Manchester City's at the top. They played 7-1-6 and lost one. But Tottenham Hotspur under Postacoglu has gone from the doghouse to the penthouse. As I often say, sport is a funny outfit. Some in the end get the gold mine, the losers get the shaft. But the great thing, there's always another day. Look, I want to return to this disgraceful business about people who are not vaccinated, unable to find work. Tony Abbott was one of the very few who warned about the coronavirus response. This is a big issue and it's unresolved. As you know, I argued against all of this testing, vaccines, masks, lockdowns, shutting kids out of school, stopping people from visiting their grieving families, arresting people for sitting on a park bench, and I was cancelled. But everything I said at the time has now been proven to be true. We knew who the vulnerable were, people with comorbidities, the elderly and Indigenous Australians in remote communities. The rest of Australia should have been allowed to get on with their lives. I've said before and I'll say it again, Craig Kelly, the then Federal Member for Hughes, produced proof of the effectiveness of cheap drugs like ivermectin. He was vilified and called a foghorn of ignorance. Big Pharma had all the answers, didn't they, via vaccination? I don't think so. I've said all this before, but it must be said again. This is another millstone around the neck of the Albanese government, a Labor Party supposedly supporting the worker. To this day, we've never been told what the big pharmaceutical companies were paid, and no one in government or the opposition seems to care. The poor mug taxpayer was told that everything was free. Coronavirus tests were free. Vaccine one was free. Vaccine two was free. Booster one, booster two and Big Pharma just kept counting the money. You and I to this day have been told nothing. I've told you before that in one of the many interviews I did, Craig Kelly cited an open letter from a raft of distinguished UK doctors to the Chief Executive of the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency in Britain. That is responsible for ensuring that medicines and medical devices work and are acceptably safe. The letter of several pages expressed concern that the coercion... See, this is all happening at the beginning of this vaccination campaign. All this information was available and ignored. And indeed, Craig Kelly and others in Britain, they were cancelled. These pages expressed concern that the coercion being exercised to accept a certain medical treatment, namely vaccination, was against UK and international laws and declarations. In part, the letter said, and I quote, no medical intervention should be introduced on a one-size-fits-all basis, but should be fully assessed for suitability, according to the characteristics of the age cohort and of the individual's concern. The individual's concern means people might say, I don't want to be vaccinated. Well, it's fine. No, it's not. You won't be employed. This letter from eminent health professionals, deans of medicine, concluded, quote, there is wisdom in the Hippocratic Oath, which states, first, do no harm, the letter argued. All medical interventions, it said, carry a risk of harm. So we have a duty to act with caution and proportionality. 
This is particularly the case when considering mass intervention in a healthy population in which situation there must be firm evidence of benefits far greater than harm, unquote. Now, I've quoted in the past one Dr. Jeffrey Bark, a board-certified primary care physician from Orange County in Southern California. He had personally treated multiple COVID-19 patients. None of them needed hospitalisation. None of them died. He argued that COVID-19, like any infection, was serious, but that people should not be afraid. But then he said this, quote, as things now stand, we've reached a point where it is impossible to differentiate medical truth from medical fiction, health information from health misinformation. By the way, who's dishing all this out? Governments were involved in health misinformation. He said, there has never been an organised effort to censor and completely shut down opinions that differ from the mainstream in the last 200 years of medical practice that is happening now. In other words, shut people up who disagreed. He went on, currently any information that casts concern about one of the approved COVID-19 vaccinations is censored. And the source is accused of being anti-science, fear-mongering, publicity-seeking, or part of a fringe group to be shunned. I mean, I was accused of dopes in the media who would know nothing and have read nothing of being anti-vaccination. I've been vaccinated by choice ever since the age of two. Now, of course, I must say here, that those who did express concern have been proven to be right. In Queensland, under Dr Jeanette Young, who's now been made governor, a doctor faced jail for administering hydroxychloroquine. As Dr Mark said, and he was not alone, if a public presentation is made advocating hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, or even such supplements as vitamin D or zinc, the person's medical credentials are assaulted." Unquote. I mentioned many times the distinguished Australian, Professor Robert Clancy, along with Professor Thomas Barodi. They cited Dr Satoshi Omura, the 2015 Nobel Prize co-laureate for the discovery of ivermectin. And Professor Clancy and Barodi argued, recently Dr Omura and colleagues in comprehensive studies on ivermectin activity against COVID-19 concluded that the preponderance of the evidence demonstrates such efficacy. Professor Clancy then made the point, on the matter of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, Craig Kelly has been right to raise awareness about these drugs and their potential to be effective in the early treatment of the disease. He then said, Professor Clancy, quote, as an immunologist, I am an expert and I believe my opinions need some clear air." Unquote. Well, I say again of the attacks on Craig Kelly, Professor Clancy said, it's very sad when people start dragging the guy apart. It is bad enough when you drag someone apart on facts, but if you do it without facts or understanding what the argument is, it's disappointing, unquote. Well, Craig Kelly was cancelled, as you know, vilified and defamed. His career was ruined, which is why people have clambered for a royal commission. What do we get? Nothing but an inquiry. States are exempt, but they were the ones who issued these dictatorial orders. On the whole coronavirus response, we've been grossly deceived and damagingly misled. We don't have a Royal Commission because governments of all persuasions were led by the nose. As a result, thousands of people have lost their lives, estimated at 20,000 who could have been saved. But businesses have been destroyed, billions of dollars wasted, 
Many are living but suffering long-term related injuries via either long COVID or the misinformation of governments and bureaucrats. People have been denied access to the life-saving ivermectin, but other people are still suffering because they've lost their jobs for being unvaccinated. When I spoke on this program a couple of weeks ago to Joe Nova, she argued this was the biggest medical scandal since 1850. Why a cheap, safe drug was actively suppressed because it threatened the emergency use authorizations for all experimental vaccines, an industry worth about $100 billion. But now, of course, when it's all over and Big Pharma have got their money, the Therapeutic Goods Administration says ivermectin is okay, which we said at the outset. Big Pharma have taken their money, others have lost their jobs for not being vaccinated and are still denied employment. I spoke early last month to Jay Vidinash, a South Australian barrister based in Port Adelaide. You might remember he's represented a number of individuals in COVID-19, vaccination-related cases, particularly those who became unemployed as a result of conscientiously objecting to the mandates at the time. Jay Vidinage rightly argued that this banning of people who aren't vaccinated has created mass staff shortages, especially in the public sector. In that interview, I made mention that in South Australia, there is a red union which has supported workers against these mandates. Well, Graham Haycroft is the executive director of the Nurses Professional Association of Australia. Graham's cop vilification for seeking justice to nurses and medical professionals who still are not working because of their medical status. And Graham Haycroft joins me. Graham, thank you for your time. Let's just get a few things out of the way to start with. Your Nurses Professional Association of Queensland was the first of the Red Union Group. You're described as a fake union and a court case in Queensland in July 2021 found you not to be a trade union. Did you ever pretend that you were? Well, the, this is an inter interesting question. No, we never really pretended to be a registered trade union. We never wanted to be registered. And essentially that's what it came down to. In fact, we always regarded ourselves as a professional association which could do and still can do everything that a registered trade union can do. In other words, we are a genuine alternative, but we charge half. I'm not the executive director, although I, I run the service company which provides all the services to to that association, but that's just a technical thing. Okay. Uh, and of course, of, course we, of course we're called fake, you know, um, because we charge half as much as what the other the other mob do, the, the real ones, because uh, we're only in it for the money, Ellen. That's why we charge half as much. Um, and... We are definitely not on the employer's side. The, the registered trade unions have a monopoly granted, if you like, by the government and by their employer. So the registered trade unions, the labour-supporting registered trade unions, are, if you like, captive to their employer. Now, if you want a definition of fake, give me a better one. They're the fake unions, we're not. But we don't mind. They can call us whatever they like. Um, our membership, we started, when the mandate thing started, uh, we were inundated by people, nurses and, and teachers in particular, who who wanted to have some protection against the, these mandates were being thrust upon them. We had a look at the law and said they can't do this because they're effectively trying to change a contract. But just interrupting so, you there, interrupting you there Graham, Graham, you say they can't do that. They have done it. 
That, that's the point, isn't it? These people that you are trying to well, represent, you know, nurses and teachers and others, it's been done. These people are still unemployed. So how successful, well, God, how successful yeah, have you been? Well, um, I guess we, we found that not only we, let me, let me sort of point this out. We, uh, we looked at the law and the law said you can't do it. So we took them on. We, we represented about, about 3,000 people. And then we found that the commissions and the, the uh, human rights tribunals where we found these cases just basically closed up and said, oh, we don't want to know about it. We don't want to know about That's it. That's right. So they, the whole thing has been a complete travesty, but we were the ones that stood up for them. And in Queensland there's about 3,000 nurses who are all qualified, all want to go back, Queensland Health is dithering, and the reason. So, so they're stop, 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 stop there. So that's a very good figure. Okay. Are you saying that as I speak to you tonight, there are three thousand nurses? Did you say three thousand nurses in Queensland? In Queensland, unable yes. to get re- return to their employment because they're not vaccinated. Correct. But uh, the uh, government has just changed the rules to allow it because they are desperately short. And patients are dying, right, because they're just a desperate shortage of nurses. Have these 3,000 3, nurses in Queensland been reinstated? No. They, they, they're dribbling them on. And here's the reality, Ellen. Every person that joins us is somewhere between $300 and $500 that doesn't go to the ALP, Right. So the ALP government does not want them to come on board because they know they're not going to join in Queensland, the Queensland Nurse and Midwifery uh, Union, because they were the ones that refused to represent them when the trouble hit. So they are still saying they're going to do it, but in, in practice they haven't really started yet. So these nurses are really just industrial cast-offs. I mean, a young lady, this is staggering, I mean, a young lady has written to me and said, quote, I've applied for my practising nursing registration and, of course, the AHPRA, which is the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, another bloody piece of bureaucracy, she says, will be, I bet you do, will be on my back if I do any public interviews. However, I cannot get back my nursing registration. Now, I've been at this in the media, you've been at it, but in spite of, we might, yes. think we're, we might think we're doing a great job, but in spite of everything we might have done and said, there's a roadblock. There are 3,000, God knows how many nurses across Australia and teachers and policemen and women are still unemployed because they're not vaccinated. Yeah, and it could all be solved tomorrow if the non-Labor opposition stood up and started yelling and screaming. I agree. But they've said nothing. They backed it all, right? They couldn't see down the track. All they had to do was say, right, they're doing that. We don't have to go along with them. It's the Westminster system. But they fell over themselves supporting in every aspect, particularly Victoria and in Queensland, they fully supported this mandate thing so, and, and held the view that yeah. many nurses didn't get vaccinated yeah. and should well, be sacked. Yeah, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with being wrong at the time, but when you realise you were wrong, you should admit it and then acknowledge that there are people out here who have been prejudiced by what they're doing. So basically you're saying, apart from what you are doing and, and people like Dr Vednaj in South Australia, 
These people who can't get a job have no one taking up their cause. And, Ellen, these people are what you and I would call conservatives. Yes. Right? These are people that had the courage and strength and believed in yes. their own you know, individual rights to stand and say, well, I'm not going to have this. This is wrong. Now, these are the people that traditionally vote LNP. These are the people who are the LNP constituency. All the LNP's got to do is say, hey, guys, we've made a mistake. We now support you yes. and start yelling and screaming. Yes. And once that happens, I agree. Labor would collapse. I agree. That's why, well, that's, totally. why I'm, that's why I'm talking to you. I, I mean, I interviewed a young lady born in Cambodia. She arrived here via a dangerous open sea voyage from Vietnam. She finished up in a refugee camp. She came here as a 12-year-old and began her education. She finished up graduating from medicine at the University of Sydney. She was suspended from her medical practice because she prescribed ivermectin to treat a gravely ill patient with coronavirus. The patient recovered quite speedily. She is banned from practising. Now, Graham, I mean, where can such people turn to? This is 12, 15, 18 months on. Uh, well, I guess we're basically it. The, um, you're talking about it. This was, she was a nurse or a doctor? No, a doctor. doctor. A doctor. Yeah. Well, we set up we, two years ago or 18 months, we set up AMPS, which is Australian Medical Professional Society. And we are that, that particular group under Cara Thomas, and uh, who's, who's the secretary, doing a fabulous job. We are taking, looking, look, we're looking like getting a case up against APRA. Um, we're just sort of sorting that out now. I mean, this is just people, people. People watching you tonight just can't believe this. That's why I've done this again. I've spoken so many times on this program. I spoke, Graham, recently to a former employee of New South Wales Ambulance, a paramedic, terrific and distinguished career, yep. can't get a job anywhere because he's not vaccinated. His wife is a registered nurse with a postgraduate diploma in acute care, a master's degree in clinical teaching, husband and wife, six children, Children can't get a job. I mean, who the hell is coming to their aid? Well, we can only do so much, but it's an essentially a political question. It is, it is. And the LNP have got to wake up and say, excuse me, this is our constituency. Things have changed. These people need to be brought back to work. Definitely. But they won't do it. Definitely. They I mean, they, they, they were told, they were protesting. Now These people unemployed were protesting because they didn't believe that vaccination would stop transmission. That's what they were told. I don't want to know about it, they said, which is their personal entitlement. And they have now been discriminated yes. and continue to be discriminated against in a democratic society. Dr. Asim Malhotra is a British cardiologist recently in Australia. He argued yes. that these vaccines should not have been given to anyone. Now, many of these people work in essential we services. Out, Alan. Eh? We bought him out. Yes. The Red yeah. Union bought him out. Abs. Oh. Yes, yeah, so, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 but I mean, you know, the, the, bloke in struggle, it, yeah. the bloke in Struggle Street is discriminated against, but he can't afford to defend himself. And so, where are the opposition? I don't know. I honestly do not know what can be done for these people, but it's a disgrace, a disgraceful treatment of decent Australians. Well, I mean, the the only thing they can do, they can stay in their existing professional association, like the AMA were totally in favour of, of all these mandates. If you're a doctor, why would you stay with them? Or if you and you can join our association, at least we're fighting and we will continue to fight. Or if you're a nurse, 
the the a the AMF. That's what it is in the other states, Alan. That's the Australian Nursing Midwifery Federation. They did nothing. They sat back and said, we can't do anything for you. Uh, why would any nurse that is a non-Labor voter be a member of the ANMF or the QNMU? So uh, how do people get in why? touch with you? How do people get in touch with you? Well, they just go straight to the, the website, straight to the Red Union. Straight That's to the, the easiest Red, one. Is that it? The Red Union website? The Red Union website, or they can go to the Nurses Professional Association of Queensland or the Teachers Professional Association oh, yeah. of Queensland or Australia. Uh, easy peasy, Ellen. They can find it and uh, we'll walk on them all. Okay, well, thank you for what you're doing. It's just unbelievable. I mean, it's Graham Haycroft. He's doing the job that unions and politicians should be doing, securing employment for those who want to work. And if the Privacy Act doesn't prevent an employer inquiring into your medical status, then it should. People are still being rejected at employment because they're not vaccinated. Beyond belief. Democratic Australia? <laughs> I don't think so. Well, before we go, the focus now turns to continue our sporting flavour to the world of racing. A friend of mine, Karen Scott Happer, is an Australian living in America who has pioneered at the time of the US Open tennis championships, the taste of tennis. She gathers together the finest restaurateurs in New York City, along with the best tennis players, and it's always a night to remember. The greats of tennis serve it up in a culinary sense to New Yorkers seeking a night of style and enjoyment. Well, now Karen has established the inaugural Taste of Turf, which involves the best of Sydney's restaurants together with the greats of the racing world, all to coincide with the world-acclaimed Everest event, the richest horse race in the world. Now, the Taste of Turf is about great food, a great night, great hospitality, and a great party. Karen's done 23 of these in New York prior to the US Open. Now she's put together the very best restaurants here, and she tells me the best food she's ever worked with. Now, it's totally cosmopolitan. All parts of the food world are represented. Five Sydney seafood restaurants, three fabulous Italian restaurants, two of the top chefs from the star, Japanese and fish, and a wonderful mixture of Middle Eastern food. There'll be 24 tables, each chef giving a sample size of their signature dish, interspersed with a lot of watering holes providing the finest wines and cocktails. It'll be in the Wink Stand at Royal Randwick, October 11, from 7pm to 10pm. Not sure about the 10pm. <laughs> this could go on. Dress is business, or as Karen says, happy cocktail. But this is the point. It's the only way to get to the Spring Racing Carnival. Everything else is by invitation only. $300 per person, all inclusive of food and wine. Trainers and jockeys will be behind the tables serving food with Sydney's finest restaurants and chefs. So there you are, October 11, 7pm to 10pm, the taste of turf. Just go to Ticketmaster or the website to book your table, tasteofturf.com.au. That's easy to remember, tasteofturf.com.au. I'll be there. Join us. Well, that's it for me tonight. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Don't forget you can hear it all from 6am tomorrow on the podcast app. Just search Alan Jones. I'll be back tomorrow night to do it all again. Thank you for being with us. You're watching ADH Australian Digital Holdings. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.